Thank you, Jason. It's a joy to have the Rob Winslow family visiting with us from Union today and others visiting with us. I understand it's uh, Gary and Vanilla's anniversary. It's Janie Pease's birthday today and also Sylvia, her mother's birthday as well. So got a lot going on today and um, congratulations to all of you here. Um, it was a joy to see Miles up here. Some of you know that we've been uh, praying for Miles this week. He had a he had a, a, a virus um, that was uh, just hanging on and uh, really not uh, healthy. And uh, the Lord uh, worked in his little uh, little body, and he's able to be with us today and improving. And thank you for your prayers there. Um, we are in in Psalm chapter nine, and we've been working through the Psalms. This will be our last Psalm. Uh, and then next week we will jump into the book of of First Peter and uh, look at the theme overall of the book of how do we live in Babylon, thriving in Babylon uh, here and the instructions that God gives to us um, of hope and also um, practical instruction uh, in the book of First Peter uh, of living uh, in a when you're a called out person from God's world, how do you live in the world um, uh, that uh, that that you're in? Uh, how do you live as a citizen of another of another eternal country and this temporary country here? And that's what Peter speaks to us about as strangers and exiles, he calls us. So looking forward to jumping into that next week. But we are going to finish out uh, the book of uh, Psalms here and pick it up probably next summer again. But we're going to finish in verse in chapter nine. Uh, a lot of people believe chapter nine and chapter 10 are one psalm together. Actually, they're actually an acrostic, which means that the first um, letter of many of the verses here is in, in alphabetical order and they and they describe things it's a, it's a way of way of Hebrew poetry uh, so we're gonna only do nine today because I time would not do justice to do both uh, nine and ten here Reachers, researchers have proven what probably many parents instinctively know that gratitude thankfulness doesn't come naturally. Uh, In her book entitled The Gift of Thanks, Margaret Visser cites a study that observed how parents teaching their children to say hi and thanks and goodbye. Um, The children in the study spontaneously said hi 27% of the time, goodbye 25% of the time, and thanks 7% of the time. Parents had to prompt their children to say hi about 28% of the time, goodbye about 33% of the time, and thanks 51% of the time. You all know this, right? Uh, but uh, And in conclusion, children also had a much more difficult time learning to say thanks. Most children have to learn to say thank you even before they know what it means. And Visser wrote, eventually, when children have matured and been further educated, they will come to be able to feel the emotion that the words express. The words come first, the feelings later. And maybe this also applies to adults, too. It's based on this research, she concluded that learning to be thankful involves a steep learning curve. Because our default, the gravity pull towards us is to complain and to gripe and to moan. Look what we don't have. In our culture, Thanksgiving is believed to be, you know, in, in teaching manners, etc., one of the, one of the very, uh, 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 last things that we acquire, but, um, certainly expected in our culture. And children, uh, they'll have to be brought up to say they are grateful. They don't bring themselves up. It's part of training, right? Visser also says this. 
Although we have to grow in the practice of thanksgiving, once we finally learn to be grateful, we seldom forget it. Some phrases like thank you become so ingrained in us that they last when almost everything else has been forgotten. In states of people suffering from Alzheimer's disease and other diseases of the mind, these little phrases often survive the shipwreck of other memories. I find it interesting how much of Scripture puts an emphasis on gratitude and thankfulness and praise. You might wonder, what's the difference between praise and, 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 and thankfulness? And Birch sums it up this way. If you saw a, a, um, a, a baseball player uh, uh, who just stood out head and shoulders above the rest, um, you wouldn't say thank you necessarily for what he does. You would you would be in awe of of what he's done, and that's what praise is. Thank you is more of thank you for something that you have done for me. And so there's a little little bit of there's overlap there with praise and thank you, but there's a little bit of difference uh, as well. It's interesting to note in Paul's exposition of Roman or Paul's letter in Romans chapter one, he he describes humanity, describes that God created the world, and he notes this. That the God who created the world is all-powerful. When people turn away from worshiping him as creator and start worshiping the things that he made, creation, one of the things Paul says in the downward slide of their hearts is, neither were they, un- neither were they thankful in their hearts. There's a, there's a close tie here in thankfulness and worship. And this psalm that Jason read this morning is about worship and it's worship that, that arises out of a heart of praise and thankfulness to God. This is the first psalm so far where it is, it is a psalm, um, uh, that, that, that is, that is a, a psalm of, 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 of great worship and, and, and praise and thankfulness. So far we saw one and two where it really lays out the theme of the book of Psalms, the wise and, and the unwise, the, uh, the wicked and the righteous. And we looked in Psalms 3 through 7, which describes some of the circumstances that were going on and difficulties and trials in the writer's heart. And he, and he, and he turns his heart toward God. And then last week we saw Psalm 8, where, where the psalmist looks at the expanse of God's creation and he says, look at little me on this little speck. This little rock orbiting around the sun and our little solar system, which is part of a huge galaxy, which is part of billions of galaxies. He says, what is mankind that you even notice him? But you visited him. You've given this dignity. You crown him with glory and honor uh, to do the things that you have, have purposed him to do. And so now we get to Psalm chapter 9 and there's just an overflow of praise. You'll notice the heading there in Psalm 9, praise to God for deliverance. It's uh, it's, uh, it's to the chief musician, the choir master, it's the tune, to the tune of, uh, the Hebrew says, a death of the sun, death of the sun. No one really knows what that tune is. It's, uh, ascribed to, to David here. And he writes this, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart, I will show forth all thy marvelous works. And I want to look at that first line there. I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart. The first thing I want us to see about worship, there are five things I want to see about worship this morning, is this. He says, I will praise you, Lord, with my whole heart. My whole heart. You see, the, the depth of the psalmist's confidence and his, and his assurance is, 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 is demonstrated by this fact that praise isn't just coming from his lips. The lips are things you can see, right? But they're coming from the totality of his heart, his will. 
And it's not just his intellect here. I know these things about God, but it is it is arriving out of the out of the love of his heart, this the, the part of his his, his decision making, his trust here, with his whole heart, his whole heart. He's deliberate here. And the first thing I want you to see this morning in Psalm nine is that worship begins with a surrendered heart. You cannot say, "I will praise you with my whole heart, O Lord." Until your whole heart is able to say that. Which is an act of the will. An act of the will and surrender to the Lord that says, God, you are good. You are sovereign. You have uh, uh, given me everything that is good. And nothing you do is ever bad. All that you do is good. And therefore, it's an act of your will to say, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. And that is where worship must begin. There's no such thing in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, you see this over and over with Israel, of worship that comes out of half-heartedness. God doesn't look at that as worship. So worship begins with a surrendered heart. And why can you have a surrendered heart to this God? Because he can be trusted and he's going to lay out the reasons why he can worship God with a whole heart. Maybe you had an experience driving to a friend's house or a relative's house where you've never been before. And moved or maybe went to a new location and you've driven a long distance. And imagine you given directions over the phone about two weeks ago. And, uh, you know, this is before Google Maps and all that other stuff, right? Your navigational systems. And you finally get near their house. And your friends have told you on the phone, no, look, when you get here, it's going to seem like it's not the place. Uh, you're going to think that you're going north, but you're really going to be going south. There's going to be some landmarks, and those landmarks aren't even going to look as though you think they should. But just keep on going. Trust me. So you're driving. You drive, and you drive, and your spouse and your kids say, Come on, Dad, or come on, Mom. What's what's going on here? This isn't the way. That's not where our friends live. That's not where our family lives. That's not the kind of place they live. This isn't the way. And at that point, you got three choices you can make. One option is to keep driving and look stupid, but follow, right, what was told you by your friends or family. The second option is to stop and call and maybe feel stupid when your friend says, yeah, that's the way, that's what I told you, right? And the third option is to turn around and go back, right? And whether you turn around and go back or not really depends on how much you trust your friend. They're not trustworthy. You're going to say, I don't know. They said this, but this isn't it, right? If you trust them, you think character is good and they're pretty good at these kinds of things, you're going to keep on going, even though you might feel pretty foolish or you're at least going to stop and make a call, right? And so the psalmist is able to, I will praise you with my whole heart because he is able to trust the one who has given him instruction about the place he's going to go and the things he hasn't seen yet. The one who has an omnivision, who sees all things, who is not bound by time and space, but who lives in eternity, who, who knows all things, who, who is all powerful, who is all wise. And so that is why worship begins with a surrendered heart. That's one I can trust. That's someone I can turn my life over to. And then the psalmist will move into Telling all of God's marvelous works. The second part of the verse, verse one says, I will show forth all thy marvelous works. And so I want you to see, secondly, that worship moves into action. You'll see the things that he describes and you'll see movement. You'll see progression. Uh, worship isn't just sitting still. It's not, 
and apathy. It's not just static. It's it's not frozen. He says, I will tell of all your marvelous works. I'll be glad and rejoice in you. I'll sing praise to your name, O Most High. Because worship just can't sit here. If my whole heart is engaged in worship, then it has to spill out. It has to flow over. It has to move. It has to has to go. It has to go. In fact, you'll find this a lot of times in church history. When God gets a hold of God's people's hearts and they turn their lives over to them, amazing things ha- happen. That that the things that have been preached out or things that have been cajoled or encouraged to do for, for decades can happen in one minute. God's people get a hold of who He is and, and they surrender their lives wholehearted to Him and things start to happen. Action starts to happen. This summer we're driving back from uh, my in-laws again and we go through Canada. It cuts about two hours off of the way here and you go by Niagara Falls. Semi-by it, you can kind of see it. Um, and you have the Niagara River. Right? It, and, and where, where, where it dumps at the, at the American and the Horseshoe Falls, there's 180 feet. And of course, before you get to those falls, if you're on the Niagara River, there's some violent, very turbulent rapids. And then farther upstream, before you get to those rapids there, the current's flowing more gently and boats are able to navigate. And just before the Welland River empties into the Niagara, there's this pedestrian walkway that spans the river. And posted on the pylons of this bridge is a warning sign for all boaters. Do you have an anchor? Do you know how to use it? And that is what's going on here with worship. Do you have an anchor? Can you turn your soul over, your heart over to the God of all creation And now as you worship, are you going to use the resources he's given you? Are you going to move? Is there going to be action that's going to flow out of this here? Because faith is like an anchor. It's something we need to have, and it's something that we need to use. The just shall live by faith. So worship moves into action. So he's going to say, I'm going to show forth all your marvelous works. I'm going to be glad and rejoice in you. I'm going to sing. There's just movement and action and progression here of, of true heart worship that's surrendered to the Lord. And then thirdly, worship then will flow out of pondering God's ways. The psalmist here is in a crisis. If you read between the lines, you're going to sense that there is a tension here. There's things that he's experiencing. There's things that he he thinks he's also going to experience, things that might get worse. He doesn't necessarily think that things are going to get better, but he knows the one who holds the circumstances is there, and he's going to trust in him. He's thinking way more about God than his needs, because he knows God is way bigger than his needs. And what does thinking about his worries accomplish anyway? And so if you look at what the psalmist says, he said he starts to describe God. He says, um, when my enemies turn back, they'll fall and perish at your presence. You maintain my right and my cause. You sat in the throne, judging right. You rebuked the heathen, the, the, you destroyed the wicked. You put out their names forever and ever. Enemy destructions are coming to a perpetual one. You destroyed cities or memorials perish with them. But the Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time and trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. 
He's pondering who God is, His nature and His ways. He's perhaps thinking of how God had made a promise to the people of Israel and the person of Abraham. And he has said, I will make a great nation out of you and I will use you to bless all the nations of the earth. And and then how God led them out of Egypt and, and how God brought them to the promised land. And he's saying, wow, God, this is what you've done and this is what you do and this is what you will do. And I wonder, have you stopped and thought about God's ways in your life? How you see him work? The old song says, count your many blessings, name them one by one, right? Um, uh, have you, have you, have you, has your mind been filled with wonder for God? It's a wonder that can only be filled by God. Ravi Zacharias kind of illustrates it this way. He says, if I were telling my children the same fairy tale, notice the different reactions. If I took Sarah at age eight and I said to her, Sarah, little Tommy got up and walked to the door and opened the door and a dragon jumped in front of Tommy. Sarah's eyes would be huge, right? Go wide. And now imagine me telling Naomi, age four, the same story. Naomi, little Tommy got up, walked to the door and opened the door. Naomi's eyes go wide. Now let's imagine I tell a story to Nathan, age two, whose entire world is exhausted in one word, cookie. (laughs) All I have to say is, Nathan, little Tommy, got up and walked up to the door. And Nathan's eyes get wide, wide with amazement. Robbie says, you see the difference? Sarah needed the dragon for amazement. Naomi needed to open the door. For Nathan, it was a pretty big deal to walk up to the door. The older you get, the more it takes to fill your heart with wonder, and only God is big enough to fill it. You never will outgrow your wonder for God if you stop and consider his ways, because worship flows out of pondering God's ways. Look at how his character is described. His character, his nature of who he is, what is at his core being produces his ways. He's, he's holy. You'll notice here the um, description of the um, of, of uh, in verse uh, three, when my enemies are turned back to fall and perish at thy presence. It's like the enemies are uh, of David here are, 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 are involved in their mischief, mischief. <clears throat> and then God opens the door. And here he is, this towering figure, and they fall back and they scramble away from him. God is just. Notice what it says in verse 8. He shall judge the world in righteousness. Verse 4, you sat in the throne judging right. You maintain my right and my cause. You shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. He's just. All his ways are in accordance with his character. God's justice is a great hope. And if you're going to ponder God's ways, the truth that he is just will cause your heart to worship if you think about it. There's a story about a man in India who's led to Christ upon reading the Old Testament. And at the time, he was teaching engineering in the local university in India. But he grew up, if you know uh, Indian and Hindu culture, there's a caste system. It's technically illegal on the books, but it still exists in culture. And he was one of the despised Dalit, the outcast community in his village. And his whole family, and was, those are those, that's the lowest caste. His whole family had suffered greatly at the hands of the higher strata castes in his village. All kinds of harassment, violence, and injustice. And so he had grown up with this great thirst uh, for revenge against his oppressors. And he worked very hard at school to get to university to prove them wrong. So he could get a job with some influence and power and then turn the tables on his enemies. 
And the day he gets at the university, he finds a Bible translated into, into uh, Telugu, his, his, his state language room. I probably pronounced that wrong, Connie, but Telugu. And he had never read the Bible. He knew it was the Christian's holy book. So he opens this at random and he starts reading in 1 Kings chapter 1 about the story of Naboth and Ahab. Which is the story of the unjust Israelite king, King Ahab, who's abusing the power that God gave him and, 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 uh, and stealing the land from Naboth, an ordinary farmer. And he's reading this story and it had so many familiar elements uh, that he had grown up with here. And uh, use, uh, false accusations, stealing land, uh, murders, brutality of the powerful against his, his delicate caste. And then he reads on and he sees this other man in the story, a man named Elijah, who in the name of this God of the Bible denounces King Ahab and says that King Ahab's going to be judged and punished by his God. And so he's reading this. He says, this is astounding. This is amazing. He said, he had millions of gods within Hinduism to choose from, but he never heard of such a God as he's reading in the Bible. Here's the God who takes the side of the suffering ones and condemns the government and the powerful for their wicked deeds. He says, I never knew this God existed. As he continued to read the Bible, he learned more about Jesus, his life and his death in place of sinners and his resurrection. And he learned about the need to forgive that flows out of that. But his road began by understanding that God is God of justice. Our God is a God of justice. He takes the side of, uh, of the oppressed and worship flows out of pondering God's ways. You'll notice in the, the text, you'll also see that he's an eternal God. He's the eternal king. Uh, he is not upended by all the little um, uh, rebellions that are going on this earth against his kingship. But you'll notice also that he's a God who cares. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. The Lord also be a refuge for the oppressed, verse 9. A refuge in times of trouble. And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee. Thou, O Lord, hast not forsaken them that seek thee. Verse 12, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble which I suffer of them that hate me. He knows that this is God who cares. And he describes, David describes this God as he ponders his way. He describes him as a refuge in the stronghold in this verse here. And, and that word describes a, a high rocky spot. The cliffs, it's inaccessible here. Provides protection from encroaching enemies. That's the kind of God he ponders. The Silence Daily a Periodical talks about the ability of certain birds who are able to sense storms coming and protect themselves. In the East Tennessee, there's a bird known as the golden-winged warbler. And these birds start doing something, start doing something unusual. They, they gave birth to uh, their chicks there. They're sitting on the eggs. And then they started to flee their nests. Which you, why are you fleeing the nests here with your chicks? And the discovery um, was made by accident when researchers were testing whether the warblers, which they're very tiny birds, they weigh less than two nickels. They put these geolocators on them, on the backs. And it turns out, when they sense a big storm brewing on a distant way, they could take off from their breeding ground in the Cumberland Mountains of eastern Tennessee, where they just arrived, for an unplanned together migratory event. And all told, they can travel 900 miles in five days to produce some of these storms that produce tornadoes in, in Tennessee. Golden-winged warblers. And they know in advance that a storm's coming. 
And they leave the scene before these super cells form below him. Scientists really don't know how this happens. Um, theories are that there's kind of an infrasound a frequency that alerts them. Storms are coming. Um, they, they have something that we don't have many times, a warning. And they go to refuge. They go to refuge. And folks, um, we don't know when the storms are coming. We don't have that ability. We know storms will come, right? Jesus says, you will have trouble in this world. But we know where to find refuge when that storm comes. There's never a doubt where to And it happens by pondering God's ways. And true worship will flow out of pondering God's ways. Because his His character produces the way, the ways he works, his ways. And his ways are really how he expresses his will on this earth. Our God can be trusted. Ponder his character. They'll trip over themselves. The enemies will shrivel up, but God will last. Uh, uh, he endures forever. The evil that's in this world is temporary. It can't be, the people in this world can't be totally trusted. God can be trusted. He's our advocate. And then, fourthly, worship drives us deeper into God. When you ponder His ways, the only appropriate response is to be driven deeper into the cave who God is. Into the, into the refuge who God is. Um, look at verse 9. The Lord also be a refuge for the oppressed. He's a refuge in times of trouble. Um, verse 12, he doesn't forget the cry of the humble. And then notice what he says in verse 13. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider trouble which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death. Now, what is the only standing that the psalmist knows he can go and find refuge in a holy, pure God? He says what? Have mercy upon me. The more you ponder God, the more you realize how much you don't deserve God. And the more you'll appreciate what he's got done to make that right relationship with you in the person of Jesus Christ who took your sin upon him on the cross and gave you his righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And, and, and David knows on the grounds on which he is standing and he knows the only source of hope and refuge and he wants him. He wants God. He wants God because he knows that God is a refuge for the oppressed. He's the advocate. He's the just judge. And he knows that this God is, is, is like Camp David. Camp David. Familiar with Camp David in the Washington, D.C. area? Uh, there it's where um, if there is an emergency, the president is shuttled very quickly to Camp David underground bunkers. It's his refuge and uh, other important uh, national leaders. And David here knows that God is his refuge. God is his bunker, his strong tower. Have mercy on, my, on me, O Lord. You lift me up from the gates of death. And then finally, if it drives you deeper, it can't stay there. It can't stay there. When you give your life to the Lord, when that worship begins to move and bubble and, 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 and it begins to, begins to, to act, uh, and you ponder the Lord's ways and it drives you deeper in the Lord, it's like a spring. And as you, as you as that, as the, the, the pressure of all who God is and what He's done, uh, uh, is, is, is driven down deep into your heart and you're driven deeper in the heart of God, 
Then finally, worship spills into mission to see other worshipers multiply. You can't keep it in. You can't keep it in. Look what he says in verse 14, which seems to be the point of the whole psalm, in my opinion. That I may show forth all thy praise and the gates of of the daughter of Zion, Jerusalem gates. That's where everybody came out and went in, right? I will rejoice in thy salvation. And then he talks again about the, 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 the justice of God and what will happen to those who turn against God. And he wants to be on God's side. And then he says in verse 20, Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Acts 1.8 says that when the Holy Spirit would come upon that church that would be formed in Acts chapter 2, that they would be witnesses. Martyrios, they would be testifiers. They would bear witness. They would bear testimony. And when we get the right view of God, we can't but help be witnesses. We can't help but testify. We can't help but be passionate beyond Sunday to see even the nations globally know who our God is. How they respond to it is their own decision. But we should have a passion in and of ourselves and and for others to have a right estimate of themselves and a right view of God. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3.15. But be ready, be ready to give an answer of the hope that is within you. To tell others the reason of the hope that's in you, Jesus breathed on his disciples in John, uh, at the end of John, and he says, as a father has sent me, so send I you. And they go and they testify of Christ and they follow Christ and they make disciples of Christ. And they tell people who are going to listen. Look for people of peace. Uh, Luke chapter 10 to tell uh, that the kingdom of God had, had, had arrived in this sense in the person of Jesus Christ. Worship spills into mission to see worshipers multiply. Folks, this is what praise and worship do to the believer. It first starts with a heart that's surrendered to the Lord. Because who else can you trust? Who else can you cast yourself upon eventually, right? Ultimately. And then secondly, it begins to, 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 to ferment, to, to bubble up as you ponder who God is and it starts to move, starts to move, starts to stir. And then it drives you deeper into God and who He is. You realize this is who you are. This is what you've done. This is how you already worked in my life. This is how you will work in my life. I can draw, I can be driven deeper into you. You're my refuge. Do you hear me? And it spills into mission to see worshipers multiply. That I may show forth all thy praise, the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in thy salvation. In First Peter 2, Peter says, You've shown mercy on us, so that our mouths would show forth the excellency of your praise. And so now we're gathered this morning together as disciples of Christ. And as you scatter, you're to take the things of the word of God that you've learned, that God has ministered to your heart through his spirit, and you see those things shared, multiplied, scattered.
We start at lunch, start after we dismiss in your discussions with each other about the wonder of God. You can start it throughout your week. Kids, part of your parents' job is to point you to the God who is majestic. And so have your ears tuned. Parents, be talking about God in the way as you are going. Don't try to explain everything away by human means. There's a God behind this. There's a God who loves and cares and works. And friend, perhaps you're here this morning and you hear about this relationship that David has and you don't have that relationship. You don't have that security, that trust. I want to tell you that God has done everything that is necessary and he offers that as a gift to you. And he's done that in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, God already came and was born of, as a human being. He participated in the suffering and the wickedness of this world, yet without sin himself. And the Bible says he was through the feelings of our infirmities, our weaknesses. He knows what it's like. But he also knows the reason that he came is because the greatest problem is not the things outside of us. The greatest, greatest problem is the thing that's inside of us, our own hearts. And Jesus died to give us a new heart. He took all the sin of the world. He took your sin and my sin upon himself at the cross. And he suffered the punishment that sin justly deserves because God is a just God. And he took our place. And then three days later, he rose from the grave, bodily resurrection. Not mythical. Our king arose. To prove that he has victory over sin and death and injustice and the grave and evil. And he offers this gift to you. That if you trust and you turn to Christ, he gives you a security that can never be taken away. A peace that the world will never understand until they come to Christ. And he offers that to you today. And he says, turn to Jesus and believe what I've done. The invitation is always that. It is always that. And if you're wondering, well, tell me more about that. What do you mean by the peace? Or what has Jesus done for me? I'd love to have sit down with you and be able to show from God's word how he has called you to turn and look upon him and live. Let's close in prayer and then Nick will lead us in song. Lord, you are the God who is worthy of worship. You are the God who has not held what is good back from us, but given us all the good that is in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope and eternal life that you offer. Lord, help us who are disciples of Jesus Christ to walk in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, helps us to continue standing and walking. And help us too, as Paul says in Philippians 1, to live according, to walk worthy of the gospel, walk worthy of this vocation that you've called us to. And live our lives in line, in alignment with what you've declared over us in Christ. And Lord, I pray for hearts that are here this morning and may come Sunday 
may have heard many explanations of the gospel, but have not, by the act of their will, turned to you in faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray that your spirit would do the work that He only he can do. And you would use your word and bring forth life as I turn, turn to Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.